If energy sector methane emissions were a country, it would be the third largest emitter in the world, behind only China and the United States. And that is the challenge. That is the scale of the challenge we are looking at. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, we take a deep dive into methane emissions from the oil and gas sector. Methane is a potent greenhouse gas, and reducing methane emissions across the oil and natural gas supply chain is an important part to meeting global climate goals. To help us understand why this is so important and how the world can work together to speed up methane emission reductions, Fiji George and Arvind Ravi Kumar joined my colleague Ben Cahill. Fiji is a Senior Director for Climate and Sustainability at Chenier Energy, and Arvind is Research Associate Professor in the Petroleum Engineering Department at the University of Texas, Austin, and a Fellow with the Payne Institute at the Colorado School of Mines. I'll turn it over to Ben now for this very timely conversation. Hello and welcome. This is a tumultuous time in global energy markets for both natural gas and oil with the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Um, CSIS is busy covering lots of market regulatory geopolitical aspects of the crisis. We're deeply concerned about events in Ukraine. Uh, We're closely monitoring the uh, natural gas and oil market implications. Uh, But today we're talking about a slightly different topic. This conversation is about methane emissions and the oil and gas industry. And we're really privileged to have um, two of the best analysts covering this topic. People can really speak about it very comprehensively from different angles. Arvind Ravikumar and, and Fiji George. So Fiji, let me start with you. Last year, methane emissions attracted an enormous amount of attention. Uh, we have the Global Methane Pledge signed around the COP26 conference. We've had proposed rules and legislation around methane emissions in both Europe and the United States. So to set, this, set the stage here and start this conversation, can you tell us why methane emissions are so important and why is this so high on the climate agenda? Thanks, Ben. Uh, Thanks to CSIS for the invite. Just to uh, set the stage on why methane is important, let's go back to the sixth assessment report that was released a few months back. So since 1750, CO2 concentrations have increased by 47%, methane by about 156% or so. Uh, and the increased concentration of both and other greenhouse gases have raised the global average temperature to about 1.1 degrees since 1850. And all this is primarily driven by anthropogenic sources. So within that framework, methane from ag, fossil fuels, and waste have contributed to about half a degree of the global warming to date, compared to CO2's contribution about 0.8 degrees. So methane uh, is the second largest leading contributor to warming as we know now. And therefore, the reduction of methane also has a comparable impact. In fact, it has an immediate impact because of its short-lived climate force aspects of it, as opposed to CO2, where only if you get to zero emissions results in no further warming, right? Because it's a long-lived gas. So if you look at that from that perspective, a 30% reduction in methane would lead to a reduction of about about 0.15 to 0.2 degrees by end of century, and over 0.3 degrees with coal phase out, if you add the coal phase out to it. So those are the technical aspects. Now, the other aspect is also why is it high on the agenda? 
natural gas is predominantly methane emissions, right? Uh, so there is a natural incentive. So if you think like an engineer output by input efficiency, you want to keep the gas in the pipe and produce it as efficiently as possible with minimum losses. So it is a, it is a product efficiency incentive for the companies, for the oil and gas in sector to uh, focus on. So it's got an intrinsic value attached to it. And besides that, there is another aspect. Relative to CO2 mitigation, methane uh, mitigation is relatively inexpensive. IEA has done a lot of work. The US EPA has done a lot of work on it. So there's a significant amount of methane reduction that is potentially possible at less than $10 a ton. So relatively, it's a cheap solution. So there is the scientific technical aspect. There's a commercial angle. And of course, the mitigation aspect and all these issues make methane a clearly an important greenhouse gas pollutant to tackle. Thanks, Fiji. Arvind, let me turn to you. There are lots of sources of methane, both natural sources and anthropogenic sources. Can you introduce the role of the oil and gas industry in global methane emissions? How big is the contribution? Where does it come from? And can you explain a little bit about why it's so challenging to monitor emissions throughout the oil and gas industry? Right. Thanks for having me, Ben. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here on this podcast. You know, globally speaking, oil and gas is responsible for about 30% of global methane emissions. The rest come from sources like agriculture, waste management, as well as, as natural sources like wetlands. But, you know, what, what's important to realize is that in talking everything about methane emissions globally, folks don't realize how big of a challenge this is. For example, if energy sector methane emissions were a country, it would be the third largest emitter in the world behind only China and the United States. And that is the challenge. That is the scale of the challenge we are looking at when we are trying to address methane emissions from the energy sector, which is you know, in the coal, oil, and, and gas sectors predominantly. Out of all, all the energy sector methane emissions, about two-thirds are from oil and gas, and, and a third from from coal mines around the world. So that's that's sort of where we are on where methane emissions come from as it relates to oil and gas operations around the world. So going to the question of, you know, what is it that makes it really challenging to detect methane emissions from, from oil and gas operations around the world? There are really sort of three key characteristics of, of methane emissions that we need to think about when, when understanding why this could be a potentially global challenge. The first one is that methane emissions vary widely both within the U.S. and across the globe. And this is because the geologic characteristics of where we get our oil and gas vary significantly. The shale plays in the United States uh, is very different from the gas-producing regions in Europe. There's differences in the type of equipment that's currently used for oil and gas production. For example, in Texas, we have very small sites that have maybe a well and other equipment, but in Africa, in North Africa, we might have facilities that have over 100 wells on a single site. So they look very different across different parts of the world. The third reason is that there's difference across operators. I mean, we tend to think of the oil and gas industry as a monolith in, in sort of the public sphere, but there's a huge difference in the performance of operators in, in, in reducing their environmental impact. And the last thing is, of course, policies. Different jurisdictions around the world and even within the United States have very different policies to address methane emissions. And we, we are starting to see evidence of those policies making a real change in methane emissions in those jurisdictions. So the first thing is, you know, it varies widely. And the second important thing to think about 
in terms of oil and gas sector methane emissions is that methane emissions are dominated by what we call super emitters. Super emitters are a very small number of methane emitters that disproportionately contribute a significant amount to total methane emissions. So if you go out and measure methane emissions at an oil and gas basin, and let's say you measure 100 leaks, the top five leaks, the top five highest emitting leaks would be responsible for over half of methane emissions from that basin. And so the key to addressing the methane challenge is to be able to find and fix these super emitters as quickly as possible. And that's where the challenge is because these super emitters are not something that we already know. They occur randomly in space and time and are often intermittent. In that, in fact, some of these super emitters can only last for less than 12 hours. So if you're not measuring a particular location or a site, when that event is happening, then you're most likely going to mix it, miss it. And you sort of have to look for these super emitters quasi-continuously, not just at one facility or one basin, but across the globe. And so this problem of, of spatial variation, this problem of super emitters, and the challenges of its intermittency is what makes monitoring for methane emissions at oil and gas facilities challenging around the world. Well, thank you, Arvind, for that. That's a really good explanation. And it's important to highlight the role of super emitters. So we'll talk in a minute about different methane detection technology to try to capture all those super emitters. But Fiji, let me turn to you. Can you explain a little bit about how methane emissions from the oil and gas industry have been estimated in the past, including the inventory approach that the EPA has taken and some of the, the flaws or the problems with those models? Sure, Sabin. So I'll start with a high level. So there are two ways to approach emissions accounting. One is what is the bottom up and the top down. So in, in case of top-down measurements, it's basically atmospheric models. Then you use an inversion method to take the observed methane concentrations and convert it to emission estimates. In case of bottom-up emission estimates, you, know, you can use models, uh, including converting operational and engineering data on emission sources into methane emissions estimates. So these are what we call engineering process models. This is the typical method that's used by US EPA and companies in doing emissions inventories. Now, there are other methods where you can do convert methane measurements outside the fence line from a source, you know, using atmospheric dispersion model while being on the ground and converting these emission measurements into estimates. And again, like Arvin mentioned, the population that is sampled also is important because are you developing a national estimate, a regional estimate, a sub-regional estimate, or a global estimate? So you need some statistics to scale it up. So with that understanding of top-down and bottom-up, what is typically employed by US EPA and the IPCC are what we call bottom-up engineering estimates. There are multiple tiers. Tier one is when you have uh, emission factors that have been developed at a national level. Tier two is more subnational. Tier three is you use a concept of emission factor and activity data that is relevant to your operation site. And most of these emission factors, the history goes back to a seminal study that funded by the EPA, done by GRI in the 1990s. And that forms the fundamental emission factors and methods employed by all over the world. If you go back and look at the descriptions of estimation methodology for different, different entities globally, they continue to use the 1990 uh, 90 GRI study. At the same time, some of these emission factors 
definitely are not accounting for the various super emitter issues that uh, are being brought up. And so these are the limitations and the flaws of these uh, these approaches. Now, with that said, the EPA has done, I, I would say, a fair job to review the science on an annual basis, update some of these emission factors, and they did a massive update uh, middle of the 2010s when they added the gathering and boosting segment, which we knew was completely missing from the prior inventories based on the work that Dan Zimmerly and his team did at Colorado State University. So the science is evolving. The EPA is analyzing these emissions data. It's how you incorporate the latest science in a statistically relevant measure is the key issue that is limiting the updating of these inventories. So I am very optimistic about the state and the future of where technologies are moving. And I, I hope we can talk more about that and how it can help the US EPA and not just US EPA, the entire world to improve the emissions. Because end of the day, you know, you got to measure, estimate your emissions to manage them. Otherwise, you're just working off flawed baselines. And you either have a false pretense of reduction policies that don't jive with actualities, right? So we got to get the numbers right and numbers that uh, all of us can attest to and say, yes, these are the emissions. This is reality. And this is how we're going to reduce. So let's talk about how to capture that reality. Methane monitoring technologies are developing really quickly. We've got all kinds of different monitoring systems emerging. You know, the old system of ground-based monitoring, where you might have people walking around a well site with infrared cameras is still there, but we also have drone and airplane-based monitoring. We're moving towards a world where we'll have more dedicated satellites looking at methane emissions. Fiji, can you just talk a little bit about how far advanced these various technologies are at this point? Uh, sure. So I've been in this business for over two and a half decades, and I've seen the evolution of technologies from folks just walking around a site, inventorying emission sources and and coming up with, frankly, guesstimates to use of OGI cameras in, in my previous employer, El Paso Energy, and now the use of continuous emission monitors uh, as part of Chenier's uh, QMRV program. So my explanation over here will reflect that collective experience. And what I found is every technology has strengths and weakness. So one of the things I want to clarify to your audience is before we proceed further, the term monitoring has to be well-defined. It's very, very loosely used and colloquially used by many and it's really important to get this right. So in my view, the question that you got to first ask is, is monitoring basically a detect, not, no detect like a smoke alarm, or does it include quantification, right? So the other thing you got to check is, is it a spot check or a continuous system? And often I think some may assume monitoring as continuous monitoring at a stack with data results that are quite accurate and reliable to similar to what we see on continuous monitoring systems at our plant stacks under you know, the EPA Part 75 Clean Air Act rules. But when it comes to methane, as Arvind very eloquently mentioned, it's a significant challenge, you know, right? You know, you're dealing with you know, millions of well sites, thousands, hundreds and thousands of miles of pipeline, you know, hundreds of processing plants. And what the fact that science has shown over the past decade is there is temporal and spatial variation in emissions. It is, it is an extremely challenging science to quantify. 
now the question is what is good enough, right? That is what we have to look at. So as I mentioned, each technology has got its strengths and weaknesses. You know, quite often some look as detection threshold as the most important KPI to assess the efficacy of these technologies. So what I would argue, it's equally important to assess these spatial and temporal variation and the ability of the technology to scan, detect, and measure. In my opinion, the resulting solution is a hybrid or a cluster of the paired application of two or more technologies. And if you look at the papers and the studies that I've been involved in, it's always, I emphasize, paired measurement, contemporaneous paired measurement. That is, you've got multiple technologies to assess the efficacy of which technology works better. There's not a silver bullet, I would, uh, I would say, for now. Now, as part of our Chenier's QMRV R&D program to assess the emission profile of our supply chain, we are trying out these technologies. We're trying out satellites from detection detection thresholds of about 5,000 standard cubic feet per hour to ground-based OGI cameras with high flow at five standard cubic feet per hour. And then our work is still continuing. We are doing this work for over six months. But one thing I am getting more and more convinced is that we need concurrent technologies to estimate emissions, combining the strengths of continuous monitoring technologies with others to improve estimation methods. And that will lead to the ultimate goal, which is reducing emissions. Great. Arvind, you've done a lot of work comparing different methane detection technologies and monitoring technologies. You wrote a recent paper with some colleagues that compared the performance of different technologies in Alberta. So at this point, I know it's a very fast developing space, but what do we know about which systems and approaches work best? Right. So this is this is what I'm most excited about. New technologies and especially data from these new technologies, I think are going to revolutionize the methane field globally. And, and it's one of the most interesting and important developments in our quest to address methane emissions from oil and gas operations. You know, uh, but like you mentioned earlier, you know, methane detection has been uh, historically based on infrared camera technology where someone with a camera on their hand walks around a facility looking for methane leaks. It used to be slow and expensive uh, and the compliance on whether someone reduced their emissions or reduced their leaks was only based on either spot checks by the regulator or self-reporting by the uh, by the industry. But with the advent of new technologies, and when I say new technologies, it's really, really broad. New technologies could be uh, continuous monitoring systems, which is basically like a smoke alarm in your house. You just install it on your site. And if methane emissions exceed a certain threshold, it will send an alarm to the operator. It could be uh, sensors that are deployed on drones, on aerial systems, so you can fly over the entire Permian basin in a span of a few days, or it could be placed on satellites. So you get global coverage on a quasi real-time, quasi-continuous basis. So you have technologies that are directly installed on your site, watching your site every second of the day, to technologies that are orbiting the earth that can monitor sites globally at different points in time. And so there's this huge range of technologies that are right now being developed. And, and the question is, is less about, you know, what is the best technology out of all the options available? But the real question is, what technology is most suitable to the kind of application that a regulator or an operator would want? For example, if the person looking at this is the EPA, they want to better understand what are nationally representative methane emissions, they could probably use a satellite technology or aerial technology 
to fly over the entire country and look at data from different parts of the country in a relatively short time. But if you're an operator and you're thinking about how can they tell the world that my sites and my operations have low methane emissions compared to others, you install continuous monitoring systems and other technology on your site and transparently tell the world that you know, this is the exact methane emissions on my sites because I'm measuring this continuously. And you can see the data on this dashboard that streams data from the site on of methane emissions into something that's publicly visible. And so this range of technologies now provides us but much greater transparency in what the methane emissions are. Previously, it used to be that we had to rely on EPA estimates or self-reporting to understand what methane emissions are. Right now, we don't have to do that. Just pay a satellite company to point it at the facility you care about, and then voila, you know what the methane emissions are. And so I think that is going to bring a huge shift in, in both how we mitigate methane emissions, but also how operators think about addressing methane emissions along their supply chain. And I, I tell this a number of places, we're going to go from a world of methane 1.0, where we had limited technology, we had static emissions factor-based approaches, we have national average emissions, to a methane 2.0 world, where we're going to have ubiquitous and continuous methane sensing, we're going to have dynamic real-time estimates along specific supply chains, and we'll move from average values to supply chain specific values. And I think the development of new technologies is going to help us get there to that world of methane 2.0. Thanks, Arvind. So great explanation. Fiji, let me turn to you. As we're on this journey towards methane 2.0 with much better data availability and quality, I imagine it's pretty challenging for companies like Chenier. You've already talked a little bit about how you've looked at different technologies and how the focus has shifted over time. But just tell us a little bit about how companies are making sense of this. When you know you have to cut methane emissions, but it's not really clear what technology is best, what data platform is best, what provider is kind of the best option, what do you do? I mean, do you try a little bit of everything? Do you experiment with data from different providers and compare and contrast? Can you do trials? I mean, it seems like it would be quite confusing for companies and also pretty expensive to try all these options. So maybe walk us through how Shanir is thinking about this challenge. Definitely, Ben. So I'll start off with what we are trying to do and where we reside in the value chain, right? We are in the middle of the value chain and we're like the fulcrum between producers and end users. And Chenier, you know, we've shipped out over 2,000 cargoes to over 35 plus countries. We are the largest LNG exporter uh, out of the United States, but we're also one of the largest buyers of natural gas any day, you know, over 7 BCF per day. We hold over 11 trillion BTUs per day of pipeline capacity. So with that comes this point in the supply chain on how we can address uh, methane emissions. And this is public records. You know, methane emissions from a liquefaction plant is very minimal compared to the supply chain. And, and, and this was brought forth in our life cycle analysis. So why are we interested in methane, right? Because we see that as the quickest, fastest way to reduce the emissions intensity of product, which is demanded by a cleaner product is demanded by multiple uh, stakeholders. So when once we did the analysis, our next step was, okay, how do we address the issue? And, and we soon found, and we started this program called QMRV, Quantification Monitoring Reporting Verification. The goal over there was threefold. One is, can these sites meet a particular standard that through our lifecycle 
is about uh, you know the, uh, the top quartile of performance. What technologies can be applied, and how do we scale these technologies? In the evolution of all these technologies and the advent of technologies, like you said, it is confusing. It is expensive. So Chenier took it on ourselves to sponsor and fund this multi-million dollar program. And we announced this program last year. We are well underway with five of our important operators, part of this program, in three different basins. And Arvin is the PI on that project, along with Dorit Hammerling at the School of Mines doing a lot of the analysis. So what we're trying to go with there is to answer the question that you raised, which technology is better, which technology works, and how do we scale this up on a larger basis? So I, as I mentioned, we are reviewing from satellites to ground-based OGI camera and high flow. The preliminary results that we are coming out with is that we need paired technologies. There's a lot of promise in continuous monitoring technologies, and the technology will get better not just from detection standpoint, but from quantification and localization of the emissions. So I envision a world where you have continuous monitors providing more or less the same benefit as an OGI camera, but also gives you the quantification and localization part. And you pair that with your ONM records and so on. That's the stuff that Arvin and Dorit are, are doing their big data analysis on. So it's all important to use pair technologies. And I believe our work is the first of its kind on a long-term basis where a customer, a supplier, an academic are getting together, reviewing these things. And, and we hope to bring these results into the public domain soon. So people and companies and policymakers and different stakeholders can make the right decisions on what are the next steps, what technologies work best. And, and we take the right solutions to, to effectuate the main important thing I emphasize is mitigation. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Fiji. Arvind, let me turn to you to pick up on a theme that Fiji just mentioned, which is we're moving towards a world where we are going to have a lot of raw data, right? A lot of raw data for monitoring systems. And we need to provide rigorous, transparent data on greenhouse gas emissions. Investors are demanding this. Shareholders are demanding it. Regulators certainly and the public increasingly are demanding it. But I imagine there's a big challenge, though, with translating all this raw data into usable data and trustable data that is out there in the public domain that governments and regulators and others can, can access. So can you talk about some of the challenges with that process? Right. So one of the things that are that is central to the success of all new methane mitigation policy frameworks, uh, whether in the U.S. or around the world, the key to all of that is, is trusted, transparent, and rigorous data on methane emissions. You know, what all these new technologies and sensors give you is raw data. You want that raw data to be translated into useful information, whether it's for an operator to, to fix an equipment and reduce emissions, whether it's for a, a financial company to think about their ESG portfolios, or whether it's for a customer thinking about the methane emissions associated with their supply chain. That useful information needs to be credible. And, and this is something uh, I have a lot of concern over. The reason is that you know, we have seen this in a different part of this climate question on how things could go wrong. And, and the perfect example I have is carbon offsets. 
you know, there's a lot of variation in the quality of carbon offsets. You have offsets that are expensive, that cost $600 a ton, and are quite credible in long-term sequestration of carbon emissions. And there are also offsets that are very cheap. I mean, when I book a flight on United, uh, they say they'll offset the entire cost of my flight for less than a dollar. And I have no idea what kind of offset that is that is so cheap. And so the problem is that when every certification or every credit is treated equal, fraud will outcompete quality every single time. And we have to make sure that in the methane world, we do not go to a place where carbon offsets is finding itself in currently. And therefore, we sort of need a way to develop trust in the methane data. And trust requires data analytics that are transparent, scalable, scientific, and, and critically independent. You know, let me give you an example. If you go to a grocery store to buy milk, you can either get regular milk or you can get organic milk. But the person who certifies that the milk you buy is organic is not the person who's selling you the milk. It's the USDA. The U.S. Department of Agriculture certifies and has criteria for what constitutes organic milk. If a seller of milk is also responsible for certifying that it's organic, nobody would trust that labeling. And, and we should avoid the same problem in the case of methane emissions and methane analytics. We want an entity that's independent and that's transparent and that's scientifically robust to be able to take all this data coming from all these sensors, from all these companies, and translate them to trusted information for regulators, for operators, and for other stakeholders in this process. We need a combined you know, effort from the industry, academia, and government to come out with one voice and say, you know, this is what we're gonna be doing. It's gonna be transparent. We will respect the confidentiality of, of companies and their data, but we'll ensure that whatever analytics we're putting out is transparent, is scientifically peer reviewed, it's rigorous, and, and we start with a shared basis of truth. And only then, policy frameworks can be built on top of it, whether it's a methane fee, a carbon border adjustment, or a certified gas frameworks. All of that must rely on this sort of bedrock of certified and trusted methane data. And that's something we need to be working towards. And Ben, if I may add one more point, following what Arvind said, everything I completely agree. The dilution of standards to meet the lowest common denominator to get a program started is also concerning as a buyer. Right. You cannot just say, hey, I'm going to use the existing accounting system and assign grades to a number that is highly suspect or we don't know whether it is right or wrong. It can be higher. It can be lower. And especially what we are seeing through these detection technologies of some of these uncertainties of these detection technologies cross the ranges and grades that have been assigned. So we got to look at it in a holistic manner. I applaud the fact that many of these standards are emerging, but it's really important to get the science right, the analytics right, the verification done by competent data scientists and academics, not accounting folks that are typically doing the emission inventory accounting. It is much more complicated because if your consideration is a commercial aspect or a regulatory standard aspect based on emissions or emissions intensity, that kind of verification is super important for us. Thank you, Fiji. So Arvin, let's let's talk about regulations and how the EPA is dealing with this complexity. So last November, the EPA proposed new methane performance standards for the oil and gas sector. 
And those rules would require more frequent inspections of well sites and compressor stations, lots of other facilities. It'd require operators to install new equipment that would help cut leaks or, or fugitive emissions. But at the same time, the EPA is dealing with this world of fast developing technology, right? And they wanna give operators, as I see it, some flexibility to use the best available technology without prescribing you know, one particular option. So I think that you've worked directly with the EPA on these rules. Correct me if I'm wrong. I know they've gotten input from lots of people who are you know, down in the trenches in this space. Can you just give us some perspective on how regulators are trying to deal with this problem? And if they've learned from some of the approaches that have been taken at the state level in the past in places like Colorado. Right. The key reason why we need EPA rules on methane mitigation is that, as I started by saying earlier, that there's a huge difference across operators in managing their, their methane emissions and their environmental footprint. And to be able to, to be effective in reducing methane emissions across the country, we need everyone to participate, not just the publicly listed companies. And so what, what the EPA rules does is that it acts as an umbrella to make sure methane emissions mitigation is something that's achieved across every state and by every operator. There are companies that would go beyond what EPA rules is proposing. In fact, there are companies that are doing what the EPA is proposing already. But the key is to make sure that everyone is doing it so that we have a minimum assured level of methane emissions reductions in 2025 and 2030. So that's, that's sort of the basis for why the EPA should be doing this and why these regulations are important. Now let's talk about how the EPA is thinking about some of these new technologies. And I think the reason the EPA has come out with this flexible approach to, to allowing the use of new technologies is that there are two different factors that affect this. The first one is, you know, scientific studies have been developed over the past five years that, that talk about the cost and performance of some of these new technologies. At the same time, you see operators deploying and trying out some of these technologies in their facilities and finding out that they're indeed cost effective. And so right now, operators as well are going and telling the EPA that, hey, allow us to use some of these technologies so we can reduce methane emissions in a more cost effective manner. You know, there's been a lot of experience at the state level. Like, for example, Colorado is one of the, the leading states in the country to address this methane mitigation problem. In fact, large parts of the EPA regulations are modeled after experience in Colorado. And I think, you know, with, with expanding availability of these new technologies with more deployment experience, what we're going to see is that uh, the, the costs estimated by the EPA to address methane emissions is going to significantly decline even in just a few years because as we scale and deploy these technologies, their costs are going to come down significantly. And that's going to help us achieve our methane mitigation targets at much lower cost than we are currently predicting. Fiji, let me turn to you and ask about your perspective as someone who works at an LNG exporter. So you've talked about some of the particular issues there. You know, you own liquefaction facilities, you don't own the gas, you're a major gas buyer. Um, you mentioned that your company published a pretty detailed life cycle analysis of GHG emissions that were specific to Chenier's supply chain. A really interesting paper that came out last year. And that covered everything from the upstream to transmission to liquefaction to shipping. So why did Chenier do this? Why did you think it was important? And can you maybe just talk about some of the complexities of doing that kind of LCA analysis? Sure. So when I came over to Chenier in 2018 to lead the climate and strategy programs, one of the things I emphasize is we need science to lead policies and let not the rhetoric uh, lead the science. So that's fundamentally what my management has uh, afforded me uh, in, in building this uh, life cycle model. So what we first is we did the analysis 
on a very supplier-specific basis, looking at our specific supply chain, not looking at average emission factors or regional emission factors, all of the, you know, the deficiencies that we've discussed in the past. And once we started looking at our supply chain across a portfolio, and I emphasize, it's just not producers, it's producers, pipeline, our liquefaction plant, the ships that we sent out. And then we took a step back and we assessed where are the opportunities to reduce? What are the emission profiles? And it dawned on us that there is significant opportunity to reduce cost effectively, not in a very myopic sense of just my fence line and scope one emissions, but across the value chain, where is the most cost-effective way to reduce emissions? And in order to reduce emissions, what should we do to reduce emissions? So the life cycle analysis is our analytical engine that goes into our climate strategies and corporate decision-making. And we're integrating and embedding it into decision-making. And that, that led to the QMRV projects. The QMRV projects are going to be leading into the cargo emission tax that we announced earlier. And what the cargo emission tax we hope will do will allow our customers to better manage their environmental goals by knowing what is the carbon footprint of the cargo that they're receiving. We hope it will encourage and support the ongoing efforts of our supply chain, especially many of the operators who have taken our voluntary action to reduce emissions and monitor emissions, including continuous monitors, I must add. And then uh, hopefully the cargo emission tags will raise the bar for all operators globally on what looks like, what should be transparent reporting of the emissions using the latest sites. So that is in a nutshell, what our goals were with the life cycle emissions. Yeah, thank you for that. It's a really interesting and I think a pretty important initiative. At CSIS, we've been doing a lot of work on methane emissions and, and global gas in recent months. And one of the big questions that we're trying to answer is how the demand pull for differentiated or cleaner gas develops, especially outside Europe and the United States. So in other words, will buyers in Asia and in other regions start to pay closer attention to emissions intensity, methane intensity, as they consider where to buy their gas? You know, so far, to be frank, it really doesn't seem to be a big factor, but a number of people have expressed to us that, you know, it could be a bigger factor in the future, especially if you have carbon prices, carbon constrained markets. So engineers offered these cargo emissions tags, and it's done the, the detailed work, the QMRV to support this. Do you see this as a competitive edge or a differentiator for your company or for US LNG in particular, as buyers start to look more at, at emissions intensity? Do you see this as kind of like an important offering to distinguish what you're doing from other companies and your commercial offering from others? Sure. So what we are trying to do with cargo emission tag, as I explained earlier, is to allow our customers to assess what they're buying and make informed decisions. It also helps on the other side, on our suppliers, to assess how their portfolio or their their production impacts are overall intensity. Now, what each customer is going to do or each supplier is going to do, I'm, I'm not going to comment on that. But what I feel, what we feel as Chenier is this becomes the normal way of doing business for the industry going forward. And, and since our announcement, I'm glad to see that others have announced or developed quasi-similar initiatives to improve transparency of emission profiles. So what was once an opaque sector, through our life cycle, through our peer review process, we've come up with a framework. We've announced transparency. Now, let, now we will see how the market takes this going forward. 
My hope and vision is that with better improvement of continuous monitoring emissions, with robust verification through academia or data scientists, we will have better estimates for everyone to make those decisions. So that's the vision that we have. Hopefully it raises the bar for everybody. Absolutely. That's great context. Arvin, over to you for the final question. This is a very dynamic space. Where do you think we will be in two or three years? Will that be enough time for certain, and will that be enough time for the industry to make meaningful changes on methane emissions? Right. I mean, first of all, let's start with the fact that there are already mature technologies that are being deployed as we speak at oil and gas facilities across the country. So in two or three three years, we're going to see a lot more diversity in technologies. We're going to see significant improvements in, in the capabilities of satellites and in the capabilities of continuous monitoring systems as well. With the EPA rules about to take effect in a couple of years, I think in two or three years, we're going to see significant monitoring being done at U.S. oil and gas operations, which also comes along with that significant data availability on methane emissions. And and the key in the next year or two is to make sure that we have all the frameworks and the policies and analytics in place to translate all that ubiquitous data coming from these facilities into meaningful methane emissions information and then meaningful methane emissions reductions. I think I'm hopeful and I'm, I'm very positive that the development of these new technologies is going to usher in in a world of methane emissions that's more transparent, that's more focused on mitigation uh, than ever before we have seen in this space. Terrific. Well, that's a great and hopeful note to end on. Really grateful to both Fiji and Arvin for taking the time to talk with us. Two terrific analysts doing cutting-edge work and great communicators on everything that is happening in this space. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks to Arvind and Fiji for joining us this week. I hope you will check out the work that they are doing in this area, as well as the work that Ben and my colleagues are doing as part of the CSIS project on engaging global gas players on methane emissions. There's a link in our bio to some recent analysis. As always, you can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and at CSIS.org. As always, follow us on Twitter for updates, and thanks for listening.